I wonder, what do you know about the Jewish feast of Purim? I read someone who said, there is a spirit of revelry and fun in Purim. It's unparalleled in the Jewish calendar. And if ever there was a day to let loose and be Jewish, this is it. It seems that Samuel Pepys, the great diary writer in the 17th century, his first visit to the synagogue, he left in horror because it was the time celebration of the Feast of Purim and he was absolutely disgusted, outraged at all the frolicking and utter chaos that he discovered when he was expecting to go to a very serious place of prayer. Well, what happens in Purim? Well, first there's a lot of shouting, a lot of shouting in the synagogue. During the festival, the story of Esther is read twice in the morning uh, and, uh, sorry, in the night, the eve and in the morning. And during the reading, every time the name of Haman appears, Haman is the baddie that we'll get to know a little bit later, and it seems his name appears 54 times in the book, the congregation starts shouting and they use special wooden ratchets to drown out his name. According to my source, this is practiced around the world apart from Spanish and Portuguese Jews who consider it a breach of decorum. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) As well as shouting in the synagogue, there's a lot of giving food and money and presents away. Even the very poorest of the poor give, and they just give to anyone. There's no exceptions. Anyone who's willing to accept charity can receive it. And thirdly, there is obligatory eating and drinking. Unless you have a very good medical reason, every Jew is obliged to eat and drink in Purim. There was a rabbi called Rabbah who said that in, in the Talmud that you should drink until you can no longer distinguish between Ara Haman, which means cursed is Haman, and Barak Mordecai, blessed is Mordecai. And so, this year, on March the 11th, hold on to your seats, (laughs) the story of Esther will be read across Jewish communities to boos and to hisses, to people and by people in fancy dress with wigs and coloured hair. They will eat and they will drink and they will celebrate, unhinged, irreverent, laughing, silly, outrageous and wild. They will tell the whole story from beginning to end. So this evening you're missing out big time because here I am, unadorned, brown hair, stone cold sober, and you're only getting chapter one. That's it. We will stop the story just as we're starting it and you'll have to come back next week and the week after and the week after and the week after that because today amid our hymns and our prayers, we're mostly... Just taking note of the background, taking in the context, whetting your appetite and inviting you to prepare to enter the drama.
Now, I've got to tell you, I struggled with this text this week. I've read chapter one several times, and I've consulted several commentaries, but all of them are actually looking forward to what happens next. What comes when the lady who gives her name to the book actually appears on stage? And I have to think that any sermons that I have heard on Esther have actually been one-offs. They've not been a series. They've just been one sermon. And it's mostly focused on chapter four, where um, her cousin or uncle says to her, listen, you've got to think of what's happening to you, fortune or misfortune, however you you choose to, to see it. What's happening to you is happening for such a time as this, and most sermons are called for such a time as this, when actually the fate of the Jewish people is going to hang in the balance. Serious stuff, not the stuff of coloured wigs. But, but anyway, for this week, we're mostly setting the scene, taking in the world, preparing ourselves to accompany her as she plays her part in this great drama, remembered all these years later. So... Act one, scene one, the drama begins. It begins amid the splendor of the 5th century BC Persian Empire, right at the far edge, both geographically and chronologically, of Old Testament history. This empire is vast, includes all that now we would call Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, as well as parts of Greece and the Balkans, Russia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. 127 provinces, three capitals. And the king throws a party, a great, big, drunken brawl, which he hosts. 100 and 87 days of sheer debauchery. The purpose of this party is actually not to thank his employees whom he's invited. It's actually to impress them. The king wants to dazzle everyone with his splendor and his wealth. And six months will just be enough time to be able to let them get the message. He invites his princes, governors, generals, and officials to leave their posts about half a year and to come and party in one of his capitals. There's no agenda except to gorge and drink and be impressed. So they gorge and they drink and they are impressed. How on earth is the rest of the kingdom faring with the army and the government all on six months sabbatical? Um, No one in charge back home. How's the public spending when all the taxes seem to be funding this great entertainment? Who cares? In this king, his priority isn't really to do the right thing. It's to do the fun thing. So after six months of all of that, the king decides, no, there's more. This isn't enough. I need more people to be absolutely amazed at how wonderful I am. I'm going to bring in some fresh recruits. So he opens the door to everyone who lives in the entire capital city, They're all invited to come and join in that seven, final seven days of royal display and merriment. I don't know if you noticed as Anna read, but even the writer 
as he's writing or she's writing, describing what's happened, seems mesmerized and taken. It's like he's, he, he's, he can almost see it and touch it and smell it. His senses are on overload as well. And he describes the gold goblets, each one different. That instant refill champagne, those <coughs> butlers at your elbow ready to give you everything you need. Eat all you can buffets, the white and blue curtains and purple cords, mother of pearl mosaic pavements and the marble columns. Do you want to join them? I think I would. I think most people would. There's a very powerful pull, I think, to wealth and beauty, to delicious food and drink, especially if someone else is paying. I tell you, I'd be there, especially if there were chocolate fountains. I'd jump right in and get to work. But actually, there is no such thing as a free lunch because there's a price to pay. You need to go along with the illusion that riches and power are the highest achievement. You have to admire the exhibitionist. You have to pay homage to the ego. You have to worship at the feet of shallow vanity. And there are plenty of people who do and who will. This is Xerxes' world. But this is our world too. And people are queuing to sign up to its values and idols in politics and business, in management, in media, in the public squares, but also in the private television viewing rooms. And then just when the crowds are in danger of sensory overload, the king decides that he's not yet displayed everything he owns. He's not shown those drunken hordes his wife. Now, this is at a time when no one other than the king and his eunuchs, who wouldn't be interested, ever saw the queen. But after 187 days, this king is on a roll, and he decides to break all conventions and just show off his prized possession, Queen Vasti. Now, what exactly he's demanding of her isn't really made explicit, but it's distasteful at best and pornographic, humiliating and degrading at worst. And so Vashti does the unthinkable. She says, no. Now remember, this story has comic elements, strong comic elements. And this impressive king is brought down with a bump by a wife who refuses to play his game. This sovereign king, master of all he surveys, lord of all he can see and all he can't see, halfway across the earth, he's impotent to summon his own queen from her room. You drunken idiot, she retorts when the groupies come to collect her. Her snubs as, I don't know, as public as a, a Trump tweet, I don't know. If you think I'm going to be put on show for all your slobbering, creeping hangers-on, you've got another thing coming. The king crowned with glory for 187 days, is suddenly, brutally crowned in shame. And the whole party, the whole empire, the whole world sniggers nervously into their golden goblets. Ian found a piece on the internet by a Reverend Anna Carter Florence, and it was entitled, The Woman Who, Said, Who Just Said No. And he said to me, Fiona, you must read this. 
And I said, yes, master. And I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and I'm going to quote her at length because I'm a plagiarist. This is what she says. I wonder whether Esther, who we're going to meet next week with Kater, would ever have found the courage to do as she did if she didn't have the example of Vashti, her predecessor, the woman who just said no. In an age when women didn't have a purpose, any purpose other than being decorative and fertile, Vashti cut new ground. No, she said. I'm more than a cheap thrill. I'm more than decorative display. I'm a human being with integrity and self-respect. And here I draw the line. I say no. Vashti's great no becomes Esther's great no, so that the Jews and the empire are not systematically murdered. Esther finishes what Vashti started. Together, their story is a sacred memory of how women or any oppressed people can overturn a world by just saying no. It's a story of how we, can, we are so connected that one injustice can lead to another. One resistance can give rise to another. It's not merely a feminist message. It's not a story for women looking for a reason to rebel. This is a story for every person who has ever felt her integrity called into question, who has ever had to weigh the risks between his job and his self-respect, who has ever had to stand up in the face of an unjust situation and say, no, I can't go along with this. True, it doesn't change the world, but it sets something in motion which people remembered, which Esther remembered, which the writers of the Bible remembered, and which even the king remembered. Sometimes we just have to trust that that is enough. She adds, I wonder how many kings of this world are waiting for a Vashti to just say no. And so I'm grateful here to be able to pause. The tendency is to look ahead to the actions of Esther as, as the great heroine. But it's good just to pause and to note Vashti's response, to acknowledge her stand speaking truth to power. Suddenly, stone-cold, furious, sober, the king summons his top cabinet advisors, the highest-ranking princes in the empire, the legal experts. Wigs and gowns, crowns and parchments fill the Oval Office. The best minds, the most tested experience, are cruelly interrupted from their jollities and junketing, and they're subpoenaed to crisis talks. The future of an empire lies in the balance. Unprecedented revolution threatens. It's time for resolve and clear thinking. The issue before us, they declare, their heads still fuzzy with too much champagne and caviar. This is too important to delay. Nip it in the bud we must. The day the wives get wind of the Queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Before we know it, we'll have a country of angry women who don't know their place. Can you imagine it? And so amid much heart-searching and terror, the unbending weights of the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be broken or changed is brought to bear upon this threat. An edict is drawn up and signed and ratified with seals and smudged fingerprints. 
Messengers are mobilized to send the law across the entire 127 provinces, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, as well as parts of Greece and the Balkans, Soviet Russia, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And what does it say? Every man is master of his house. Whatever he says goes. Never, never has such mighty apparatus spoken with such solemn clout. Men up and down the land breathe a sigh of relief. Ah, I'm so glad that's sorted. We might laugh, but this is our world. A world where egomaniacs climb the power. Where wealth and fawning win the day. Where leaders use great rhetoric for hollow and ridiculous gain. Where random rules are imposed on subjects where punishment is cruel for those who do not obey. Over the next few weeks, we're going to follow the plight of God's people living in this world that Esther will become queen. Unlike much of the Old Testament, um, where the stories are about Israelites living in the land that God has given them, here we have a Jewish community that is dispersed, People who are exiled far from where God is more visible. They're far from the worship and the rhythm of um, the feasts and the daily observance of uh, sacrifices and God's ways. They're far from prophets and priests speaking God's words and reminding people of them. And so in a way they are like us, living perhaps in a world of ostentation and display that actually drowns out the voice of God where God often seems to be absent, where we wonder sometimes where he's gone and why he's not a little bit more obvious. And so in a society where silliness is everywhere, what fun do we join in? When is the time, like Vashti, to say no? Do we refuse to attend all parties at Raisin Weekend, all balls, all socialising after rugby and, and hockey games? Can there be a middle way? What is that middle way? How can we guard our integrity and our Christian witness? And where more serious issues shout for our attention in our democracy, on immigration, on genetics, on equality legislation, on our relationship with the rest of the UK and the EU, on education and social wear, on health and spending and foreign policy, How are we to be God's people, to be God's voice? I would encourage you, if you've not done so already, to book a trip to the Scottish Parliament. We went a couple of years ago. We had to book it uh, in advance, but we were shown round. It was a day when they weren't meeting, but we were shown round the building. And that particular talk was about how the building had been designed to express something of the values that that Scottish Parliament was seeking to uphold. And what really impressed me was just how seriously they had taken this idea of every voice in Scotland being heard. The um, law to ban um, smoking in public places was actually brought by a (laughs) schoolgirl And um, the, the, a lot of the committee rooms are, are there and, and small committees meet quite often so that the issues that people bring are, are discussed and uh, aired. You know, this is a massive privilege. 
and it's an envy for people across the world who don't have this privilege and who don't have a voice. And I think in most of these things that I listed and some of the things that we're going to deal with in a bit more depth over this series, there actually isn't any one clear answer, any one clear way ahead. But how do we engage in that public conversation and debate so that we are throwing our hat into the ring, as it were, speaking about the issues of truth and justice? I mean, other than having a very ridiculous king, as we've just read here uh, of Persia, generally the Persian Empire was quite a sort of good-natured empire. <laughs> um, and dealing with, with the nations sort of let them get on with things in many ways. But what we see in this book is that suddenly even a sort of generous type of um, occupation can suddenly, in the hands of someone who really hates God's people, um, can manipulate things to, to bring great threat to them. And I wonder in our nation, in a nation where there are harmless activities, might there be just ways in which very quietly more ominous um, issues might rise where we're called to have to stand up like Vashti perhaps or like Esther to live in a way that's different to espouse those values of the kingdom. In a world where minorities are so vulnerable, how do we care? How can we support those who have responded to God's call and have entered the, the world of politics, the world of public service? We can't do everything as individuals or as a church, but we do have to do something. I was struck when um, David Harrison came to talk to the elders about the work of Families First that the church uh, supports here. Work that is doing lots and lots of great things. Many people's lives are enhanced and changed as a result of that. And he spoke of the, the great opportunities in befriending. It's a simple thing. People coming alongside one child and just spending an hour a week with them, giving them quality time and attention and care. That might not be the same as you know, fighting a war in, um, against ISIS, but it's something about living God's kingdom values here where we are. And for me, I thought, what an opportunity for Christians to befriend children in great need. Are we, as a church, encouraging each other to be able to, to take this opportunity to volunteer one hour a week to perhaps change, well, certainly to change the life of a child, one child for good? It's something to think and pray about. This series is entitled Salt and Light, and it refers really to words that Jesus spoke about what it meant to follow him. <clears throat> and these are the words in Eugene Peterson's language. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. <clears throat> You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God's not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. 
If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that you are there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. As I said, chapter one is the beginning of the story. It sets the scene. But it's a stage that we can perhaps understand as well. This is our calling in the public square to bring out the God flavors of the earth, to bring out the God colors in this world, to be salt and light. So step back from eat all you can till you're sick buffet. Shade your eyes from the glitter of the empty promises and seek the sovereign God that you can't see, but who is everywhere. Pray to the Lord of the universe, whose voice cannot be drowned out, and come back next week. We're going to sing of that higher throne, a throne that is greater than all the uh, kings of the earth. There is a higher throne. We'll stand to sing.
One of the ways in which we're salt and light in this world is through our prayer. And uh, I wanted us to just spend some time thinking ourselves about our response. And I'm going to read a psalm and we'll have perhaps a moment's quiet. And then we're going to sing a prayer asking God who is the light of the world, to bring light into this dark world. We'll stay seated um, to pray this prayer, and then Mike is going to come and bring a prayer for the world. But here is the psalm that perhaps we can use as our, our meditation. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a minute. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.